The following lecture was delivered at the 10th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Washington, D.C., a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture and encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Dr. Lisa Aiken will now present a lecture entitled Soul Journeys. What happens to the soul before, during, and after this life? Good morning, everybody. The topic of souls in Judaism is one that's fascinated me for many years. And I ended up writing quite a bit about it in my book called Why Me God, A Jewish Guide to Coping with Challenges. Um, most people, most Jews have no idea that Judaism is a spiritual religion. And in the late 1960s, in the age of the hippies and the social revolution in the United States, and certainly the early 70s, many Jews who were looking for spirituality ended up going out to the Far East, to India, to uh, different places where there was Hinduism, to try to find spirituality, having no idea that it was their, in their own backyard. So this morning, I'd like to talk about Jews' views of spirituality, specifically of the soul. And to begin with, I'd like to direct you to a passage in the book of Genesis that speaks about Abraham marrying a second woman after his wife Sarah died. He had 12 sons with this woman, and the Torah tells us that he sent these sons away to the east with gifts. The Torah commentator Rashi says, what were these gifts? It was a knowledge of the occult. Or to put it into different language, some of the Far Eastern spirituality actually came from what Abraham taught his sons, who were not Jewish, they were not with his wife Sarah, when he sent them away from the Middle East. And so it's not surprising that many Jews go out to the Far East to try to find spirituality because there is a form of it out there but we don't consider that to be authentic spirituality, certainly not for Jews. So this morning we're going to talk about the journeys of the soul. And to begin with, I'm going to suggest that anybody who might want to learn more about this topic can go to Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato's book, The Way of God, which is where I've drawn much of what I'm going to speak about today. The Soul, if we want to put it into modern day terms, is what we could call God's spiritual genes. God takes a part of himself, and as separate entities, these souls exist in a realm that is completely spiritual. At a certain point in time, God decides, now is the time is ripe to put these souls into a body and to send them into the physical world. Now, when the souls are living in a disembodied state in some spiritual realm, for now I'll just call it some form of heaven, the souls are perfectly happy. The greatest desire a soul can have is to be close to God. So in this disembodied state, these souls feel close to God. It's a wonderful feeling. They have no interest in going into the physical world. So why does God send them into the physical world? Because in Jewish thinking, the greatest pleasure in life is not that which we get on a silver platter. The greatest pleasure in life is that which we earn. And so 
But God determined to do is to give souls an opportunity to earn the goodness that he so much wants to give, which is closeness with him. So just to backtrack to see the entire picture, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato tells us that God is a being who is totally good. That's a premise, that's an axiom of Judaism. And as a being who could exist by himself, he didn't need to create a world, we want to understand why did he bother. And so Judaism teaches us that if God is a being who is totally good, the definition of goodness in Judaism is to be a total giver. So if God is a total giver, and the only thing that exists in the world is God, to whom is he going to give? And so we understand the purpose for which God created the world as being to create an, an arena within which he could give of his goodness to recipients. And the main recipients of his goodness are us, human beings. So when God decided to create a world in which he could give to human beings, he didn't do it just to create them and then to leave them to their own devices. Judaism teaches us that God wanted man to have free will. You can only choose to have a real relationship with God when you have the ability to choose not to have a real relationship with God. And so when man was created, God gave him two desires. One is to be godly, to search for immortality, to search for spirituality, to search to be close to our source, which is the Almighty, and a competing desire, which is to be invested in the physical world, to be materialistic, egocentric, totally immersed in sensuality and sexuality as an end in itself, to be involved in that which is physical to the exclusion of that which is spiritual. So by giving man these two competing desires, God leveled the playing field. He made it possible for man to have real choices to invest in a relationship with him because now he has real choices to do the opposite. So let's imagine that man says, okay, there's what God wants me to do, there's what I want me to do. How in the world do I know what God wants me to do? It's not a fair game if we don't have directions to the game. Or to put it differently, we need to have the owner's manual for a soul. What is the owner's manual for our soul? The Torah. So without a GPS to life, the game would be senseless. If we were just groping in the dark trying to figure out what is right and what is wrong and what God wants of us and what God doesn't want of us, we wouldn't be having a very meaningful life. We'd have to use our human intellect and emotions to try to figure out what a being who is totally spiritual and so much greater than us on every level wants, it would be a ridiculous game to play. So by giving us the Torah, we have the owner's manual. We know what the rules of the game are supposed to look like. We have two competing desires to do what God wants, to do what we want, and the game begins. But the game only begins when that soul is put into a human body, where it will have an opportunity to make meaningful choices in a physical world of how to spiritualize the body, the emotions, and the physical world. So before this journey begins, as I mentioned, these souls are disembodied and they're perfectly happy. But there's a higher level of happiness that they could have, and that's the pleasure that comes from earning the goodness that God wants to give. The Talmud tells us that if God were simply to give us 
everything we want on a silver platter, all of his goodness on a silver platter, we would feel like we were eating bread of shame. We would feel like we're welfare recipients. So by allowing us to make choices that invest in the relationship with him and earn that goodness, we will become dignified human beings. And the greatest pleasure in life is to see that by our own efforts, we have achieved something meaningful. So here's where our journey begins. A disembodied soul is determined by God one day that it's time to come into the physical world. But before it comes here, God directs an angel. I'm not going to define what an angel is for today, simply a messenger of God, takes the soul on a journey to heaven. When the soul goes to the place of eternal reward, the soul is asked by the angel, do you recognize anyone here? And the soul looks around, and he doesn't recognize a soul. <laughs> so the angel says to him, all of these souls were your neighbors before they went into the physical world. They used the physical world so beautifully that they became unrecognizable. He then takes the soul on a visit to hell, the place of punishment. Notice I didn't say eternal punishment because in Judaism it's not eternal. And he says to the soul, look around, do you recognize anyone here? And once again, the soul says, I don't recognize a soul. And the angel says to him, these were also your neighbors before they went into the physical world. They became unrecognizable because they misused the opportunities of the physical world so badly. Make sure that when you go into the physical world, you use the physical world to become unrecognizable for good reasons and not for bad ones. At that point, the soul is told to go into a body. But it doesn't want to, because where it is, it's very happy. God himself comes along to the soul and says to the soul, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, go into the physical world. In other religions, such as Krishna, it's believed that souls come here because they yearn for the wrong things. They should never have wanted to come into the physical world. Coming into the physical world was a terrible mistake. If you look at many other religions, this world is not a place of struggle that leads to the greatest good. This world is a place of temptation and negativity. Not so in Judaism. The entire purpose of creation was for a soul to go into the physical world, interact with the physical world through a physical body, and transform this physical world into something that joins heaven and earth. And therefore, the Almighty says to the soul, I'm not asking you. You must go into that physical world. When the soul is told to go into the physical world this time, it goes into a baby that was just conceived. There are different levels of soul that are put into the developing baby. And there's a midrash, which is a series of homiletical stories that are teaching us deeper messages about a truth in Judaism that says that when the baby's developing in the mother's womb, there's an angel that has a lantern. And with that lantern, the fetus can see from one end of the earth to another. Believe me, if any of my patients ever said to me, Dr. Aiken, I've got a baby in my womb and there's a lantern in there too, I would recommend some very good and strong medication. 
There's another midrash that's equally perplexing. It tells us that while the baby's in the womb, the entire time it's in there, an angel is teaching it Torah. And when the baby is born, the angel presses on this little mark that we have under our noses and makes the baby forget everything it learned during the prior nine months. Very much like graduate school was for me. <laughs> we have to ask the question, what in the world is the point of going through all of this learning simply to forget it at the moment the baby comes into contact outside the mother's body with the physical world? So let's understand what these metaphors are that the rabbis are using with the lantern and teaching the baby all of Torah. We have another midrash that says that when Adam, the first man, was created, there was a light that allowed him to see from one end of the world to the other. The idea of the lantern is that the baby's world is illuminated with total clarity, that it can see the entire purpose of what life is all about. So there's a time in the unconscious of each and every one of us when God shows us what we're in this world to do, what the purpose of this world is. And the entire Torah means that the baby understands, on an unconscious level at least, before it comes into the physical world, exactly what its challenges are going to be, exactly what tools it needs to use to overcome those challenges, and what its unique purpose is in this world. So when the baby comes into this world, it has no recollection of what it learned. And yet, there's an indelible imprint in the baby's mind and consciousness. In psychology, I'm sure in all of your lives, at some point you've had what we call a deja vu moment. When you're in a place and you say, I've been here before. I remember this. I learned this once upon a time. And so it is with us. The reason God gives us a nine-month course of study in which we learn all of Torah is so that when we come into this world in a more conscious way, Torah won't seem foreign to us. There's a part of our soul that can say, ah, I recognize this is true. I recognize this applies to me. I see myself in this story. And so we have some familiarity with what our life task is which is to relearn the Torah that we forgot and to live up to its expectations. And so now the soul is in a body in the physical world and different levels of soul will be put into this child as the child grows older. There's one level that goes into a baby when he has his brit milah, his brought into the covenant that Abraham and God made for eternity for all Jewish boys. There's another level of soul that comes into the child at the bar or the bat mitzvah. In any event, the task of this soul is to work with the body through the entire lifetime of the body to try to live Torah, to try to relearn Torah, and to try to connect the, the physical world with the spiritual. Even though to us this term of life, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, up to 120 years, is the reality that we're most relating to, to us, it's the only reality much of the time. This is but a small fraction of the soul's journey. When a person dies, what happens to that soul? What happens to that body? So at the beginning of the story of the Garden of Eden, Adam is told, from dust you came, unto dust you shall return. 
We take the body and we bury it in the ground. It's considered that when the body is buried, that the process of decomposition brings a certain level of atonement to the body. But meanwhile, what happens to the soul? The soul being a part of God never dies, and it goes to a different world. I should add, by the way, that when I talk about a soul, I'm being very simplistic. Every soul that we have has five parts to it. We have a part of soul called the nephesh. The nephesh is what we will call the animal soul. It's what allows us to move, to allow us to be alive on an animalistic level. It allows us to see, to hear, to have the five senses. But it doesn't do so much more than that. When we observe Torah, some of the mitzvot are here to be done with our bodies. For example, if I, um, if I fast on Yom Kippur, that's very much a physical mitzvah. That creates garments for the nefesh in the next world. There are mitzvot that involve the power of speech, whether it's prayer, it's saying a kind word to someone else, it's not speaking badly about other Jews, which is called Lashon Hara. All of the commandments that are involved with the power of speech affect our ruach. And in the next world, those good deeds that we did using our power of speech create garments for our ruach level of soul. The next higher level of soul is called our neshama. Technically, the neshama is that part of the soul that's involved with thinking. If I'm thinking Torah thoughts, if I'm thinking about doing good deeds, if I'm thinking something that's connecting, meditating on God, all of that is affected by and is affecting the neshama level of soul. We have another level of soul called chaya. This is a level of soul where all Jews are unified. And the highest level is yechida, and that's becoming one with God. I'm not going to get into those upper two levels for today. I simply wanted to mention that the mitzvot are designed to allow us to actualize all of those different levels of soul. The fourth level, by the way, when a Jew has what's called mesirut nefesh, self-sacrifice for other Jews. We have, for example, an Israeli soldier who gives his life or puts his life on the line for other Jews. That's acting at the level of yechida, appreciating that all of our souls are interconnected. When the soul dies, it become, when the body dies, the soul becomes disembodied. It doesn't die. It is disconnected from its physical housing that it lived in for so many years. After the soul dies, it goes to a place where it is judged. The first place it's judged is on the negative things that it did. Then it's judged on the positive things that it did. When I say judged, I mean responded to. A person will see a life review, and they will experience everything they did that was positive and negative, but this time with a total clarity of what their life could have been and actually was. So when we talk about a life review, we are all authors, or better yet, we are all filmmakers. Every moment of our existence, we are filming a video that we're going to watch again after a term of life here ceases. So whenever the person is judged on their good and their bad deeds, the soul goes to a place called Gehenim. Gehenim is a place of punishment. By the way, Gehenim in reality is very close to where I live in Jerusalem. It's a valley where people used to sacrifice their children 
to idols. And the rabbis used this term of Gehinom, which means the Valley of Hinom, to signify a place where people would be severely punished. Because um, the only way the soul can totally receive the goodness that it earns is to be cleansed from the negativity and the barriers that it put between itself and God. So unlike in Christianity, uh, Judaism doesn't say that God or the devil causes these things to happen because there's a, you know, anger and brimstone and all of these different things. The idea of a place of punishment is actually coming from God's love. And whether we look at it in this lifetime or in the future, when God punishes us, it's normally for two purposes. One is to teach us how to, to act better, to, to teach us a lesson. And secondly, it's to undo the damage that we've done so that we can receive more fully from God's goodness. So when a person's soul goes to Gehenna, the rabbis describe this as a place where they burn. The Christians took this literally. It was never meant to be taken literally. So I don't know about all of you, but when I was young, I used to watch Saturday morning cartoons. And invariably, they would have the devil and his pitchfork and somebody going into hell with all those little flames. Remember those cartoons? In Judaism, what do you think those flames are supposed to symbolize, that a person is burning in Gehenna? Shame. The rabbis were saying to us, the worst punishment that we can go through is a feeling of shame. When you get humiliated, how does it feel? Your cheeks burn. Sometimes you feel your entire body burning. Most people would do almost anything to not be humiliated. So the feeling of shame that a soul feels in the next world is realizing what it could have done with all the goodness that God gave, with all the opportunities that God gave, and how they misuse those opportunities to damage God's world, to damage that relationship of closeness, and worst of all, to damage themselves. So when a person sees with total clarity how they messed up, that can be the worst punishment. When a person sees how there was someone who loved them so dearly and they created distance in that relationship, they blew it. That's one of the worst feelings a person can have. When we go to the next world, to whatever extent we damage that relationship with the creator who loved us so much that he put us here, that is one of the worst punishments. Luckily for us, that term of punishment doesn't last more than a year. We say in Judaism that if the worst person goes to hell for just a year, we don't want most people to think that our parent was so bad that they had to be in hell for a year. So we say Kaddish for a parent for only 11 months. To say, so to speak, you know, my parent needed to be rectified, the soul needed to be rectified for the bad things that it did, but it wasn't so terrible that it had to be there for the full term. What is the idea of saying Kaddish for a soul? Kaddish, by the way, has no mention of death. Kaddish is a prayer that is sanctifying God in public. And when a parent leaves behind a child who is able to sanctify God's name publicly, that brings great merit to that person's soul. And it's to say that no matter what my parent, my father, my mother did in this lifetime, one of the things that it did was to leave behind a child to carry on a legacy of wanting to sanctify God's name in public. 
Judaism teaches us that we can affect souls in the next world. That's why we say Kaddish. We can affect the level of reward that a soul will get by our deeds here. That's why people will read what are called Mishnayot. They'll learn the oral law and the memory of somebody who's departed. We'll do mitzvot that we dedicate to the memory of someone who is now and no longer in this world because we do believe that we can affect that soul in the next world. Does it happen the other way around? Is there a reciprocity that that soul can affect what happens here? There are people who pray at the graves of very righteous people because it's believed that their souls can intercede to God and ask God in their merit to help the person who's still in this world. So in a general level, we do believe that there are certain things that a soul might be able to do from that world, but not on the same level that we do things here. One of the things I do want to mention is that it has been very well documented that when a spouse dies, I think the numbers, it's in my book, Why Me God, I think the numbers are 74% of deceased spouses contact the surviving spouse in some obvious way after they die. So there is some kind of communication, and I think it's something like 50% of deceased children contact their parents in some way to let them know that they're okay in the next world. So there is some kind of communication, but it's not in the most direct level that we have in this world. Can a soul in the next world do mitzvot? No. The moment of death, that game is over. Can that soul be affected by what goes on here in this world? Absolutely. Another thing that affects the soul in the next world, every Rosh Hashanah, we talk about God taking out the books of the living and the dead. I understand I'm taking out the books of the living. We're all still here. We need to be judged, but the dead? Every Rosh Hashanah, God goes over, so to speak, the transcript of the souls that are in the next world and looks at the ripple effects of what they did in their lifetime. A whole year has elapsed where the ripple effects of that man giving charity to that husband who wasn't able to make a living. Now what's happened to his family over the past year because of that charity the man gave 20 years earlier, every year that's accumulating merit for him. When somebody was able to teach somebody, listen, the woman who I became religious because of, she's been deceased for many years. I'm sure she's here in this room as I'm teaching Torah because if it weren't for her, I would not be here today. So the things that we do in this world are still affecting people that have predeceased us. And every year, God takes a look at what that track record looks like over the, the year before. After that period of time in Gehenna is over, the soul is then purified to the extent possible to receive maximally from the good deeds that it did in this lifetime. And it goes to a place that we'll call heaven, where the soul then gets rewarded for every good deed that it did. In Judaism, we don't say, well, a person did four good deeds and three bad ones, so they're a plus one. They get punished for every negative thing that they did. They have to be purified and cleansed for every negative thing that they do. And they get rewarded for every good thing that they do. Nothing is ever lost. If you know the laws of physics, it's interesting. In the physical world, there's no such thing as things just disappearing. You have energy, and it might be converted to something else, but it doesn't just vanish. It goes into another form. And so it is with the deeds that we do in this lifetime. Nothing just vanishes. It will go into another form. 
Either it will be something contributing positively or something that contributes negatively. But we don't cancel things out because of the positives and the negatives. So what's the ultimate pleasure that that soul is getting in the world of heaven? Number one, it's closeness to God. How many of you can imagine in this lifetime, looking back at the end of your life, and thinking about the greatest pleasures you ever had? Most of you will be thinking about relationships. It won't be another day in the office. You'll think about the time you spent with a loving spouse, the time you spent with your grandchildren, times you spent with people that were really important to you. The greatest pleasure that we get in the heavenly world is the intense pleasure magnified many, many times of closeness. Whatever God puts here in this physical world is meant to teach us about the spiritual world. If we have love in this world, it's because there's love on a godly level. If we have relationships in this world, it's to teach us about a relationship between us and God. Ultimately, one of the greatest pleasures will be the feeling that we created and earned that closeness with God. The other thing that gives us tremendous pleasure is to see all of the goodness that we created in this lifetime, and not just what happened at the moment we did it, but the after effects of the good deeds that we did. I'll give you an example. How many of you ever saw a movie called Mr. Holland's Opus? Okay, go home and watch it on YouTube after the retreat's over. Mr. Holland's Opus is what I consider to be a very religious movie. Mr. Holland is a musician, he's a composer, and he wants nothing more than to have his symphony played. He's played by Richard Dreyfuss in the film, by the way. So um, it never happens. And he is consigned to a fate worse than death. I went to public high school. I sat in music classes. Believe me, I know. I can't imagine being a high school music teacher with kids like me in the class. So he becomes a high school music teacher, and he tries to teach a girl who tries and tries and tries, and she can't play an instrument to save her life. And he tries to teach the head of the football team how to appreciate music. You can see where this is going, right? It's not exactly a fulfilling, gratifying teaching life. After 30 years giving away his heart and soul in this school, he's told, you know what? We don't need music. We need real subjects. We need science, and we need math, and we need English. And here's your pink slip. After 30 years, no party, no recognition, just you're finished. Imagine at the age of 55, his job prospects. OK, dismal enough, right? It gets worse. After he's married, he and his wife have one child. His child is born deaf. So throughout his life, there's really no one that he can give his greatest gift to, which is his music. And finally, after he's fired from school, his wife and his son come to help him move his belongings out of the building. And on the way out, they go out through a back entrance, through the auditorium. They go into the auditorium, they flip on the lights, and sitting in that auditorium are 500 of his students from the past 30 years. And one by one, they tell their stories about how he gave them the self-confidence, one woman who could never play the instrument, to become the governor of the state. And she's speaking at his farewell. The head of the football team is saying, I realize because of you 
that I had more talent than just being a jock. Another one is talking about how he influenced his life. And finally, on the stand, we see a group of 35 or 40 or 50 musicians who are finally playing Mr. Holland's opus. Why do I call this such a religious film? Because as we go through life, there's so many times when we think nobody's noticing. What we are doing doesn't make a difference. I'm such a good person. This is the life I get for that. My kids don't like me. This person doesn't like me. I lost my job. We often think that those good things that we did go for nothing. In Mr. Holland's opus, you realize nothing goes to waste. And that's a very Jewish message. There is no good deed that we do, whether somebody else notices it or not, that doesn't have an effect in this world. You may not see it at the time. You may not be told about it. You may not be rewarded for it in this lifetime. But upstairs, there's a guy who's taking notes of every single thing you do, for good and for bad. And none of it is going to waste. I've been a psychologist for more than 35 years. Yeah, I was a child psychologist. I started when I was four. <laughs> it, it never ceases to amaze me on two levels. One is what patients tell me about people in their lives who said a chance word, who did a, a, a small deed, who changed that person's life forever. In the same way that patients sometimes say to me something I don't even remember saying, and it turned their lives around. The best part about the place of heavenly reward is even if we do see something in this world that we say, wow, I can take credit for that. I got a doctorate in psychology. Wow, I could appreciate when I got my diploma that I worked really hard for all those years to get that degree. But I don't ever see the effect that I've had on all these hundreds of patients' lives over a period of 37 years. Only in the next world do we see the ripple effects of all of the things that we've done. So the soul is in this other world. It stays there for a certain period of time. Eventually, Judaism tells us that we will have a messianic era where all of those souls will be brought back with those bodies and they will be put back together and will be able to come together in a unity in this world where as a unit of body and soul, they'll be able to have an eternal reward. Don't ask me what that world is going to look like. I haven't been there yet. We'll have to wait and see. But in Judaism, as opposed to any other religion that began before Judaism, there was no concept that history was leading to a goal. Only in Judaism was there a, a process of time leading up to a conclusion that was meaningful. Okay, so I want to just conclude this part of the talk by saying, in Jewish thinking, there is a purpose for everything that happens to us. I've given you a glossy look at the whole story of the journey of the soul from being disembodied to going to the next world. I want to just touch on the topic of punishment and difficulties. When we go through life, how many times do we talk about a meaningless tragedy? How many times do we talk about things like meaningless suffering? In Judaism, every event that happens is here to serve a purpose. There's no such thing as a meaningless tragedy. 
There's no such thing as suffering that has no purpose. It can all have purpose. How we use it is a whole book that I've written about Why Me God. So I just want to conclude that part by saying that we believe that the things that happen to us in life may be affecting us through our bodies, but the purpose of that effect is to really affect our souls. The purpose of life is all about where our souls are going and what they're achieving, not using the bodies as ends in themselves. Okay, so having said that, I've been fascinated since the 1970s. Dr. Kubler-Ross was working at the medical school of the graduate school that I went to. And she was talking about these things called near-death experiences. And this was totally fascinating to me. It still is. A near-death experience is an experience where a person is clinically dead, not in a coma, not almost dead, but clinically dead. And during that period of time when the person is clinically dead, they experience certain phenomena. They don't happen, all of these, to everybody, but these different events I'm going to describe, sometimes all of them happen to a person, sometimes some of them happen to a person, but they're part of these near-death experiences. First thing that typically happens is when the person dies, they're aware of the soul being disconnected from the body. After it disconnects, the person is usually aware of things that there's no way it could be aware of as soon as, while, that body is, while that soul is still in the body. I have a friend who was walking near his house one day, and an old rabbi came over to him and said, Mark, what's the purpose of eyes? Mark thought this was a trick question, but didn't know what else to answer. So he said, it's to see. And the rabbi said, no. The purpose of our having eyes is to limit what the soul can see. That when the soul is not in a body, it actually has much greater faculties and senses than it does when it's in the limits of a physical house. So when a person's soul is liberated from the confines of the body, it can see things and perceive things that while in the body it could not. So we have many, many accounts of people, for example, in a hospital having a cardiac arrest. The doctors work on the person, the person dies. And meanwhile, the person's able to see what's happening at the end of the corridor, despite the fact that there are numerous rooms in between themselves and the end of the corridor. We have people who have reports while they were dead of seeing what was going on in the room. One of my favorite stories was a doctor who didn't believe in near-death experiences. He was in the hallway, a woman had a cardiac arrest, he was pumping on her chest, and in the process, he had a very expensive silver pen that flew out of his pocket. They worked on this woman for quite a long time, there was no way they could resuscitate her, and they left her in the room for the morgue to take down to the morgue. So meanwhile, about 10 minutes later, this woman didn't die, she came back to life. And she starts calling out, and they take her into the intensive care unit. In the meantime, the doctor who had lost his pen had searched all over the room for the pen. He couldn't find it anywhere. Two days later, when this woman was in the intensive care unit, that doctor came to check up on her. She said, doctor, did you ever find your pen? He turned white as a ghost. He said, how did you know about my pen? Again, he didn't believe in this nonsense. Everybody knows this is nonsense. 
She said, when you were working on me, I saw your pen fly out and it went under the medicine cabinet where you keep the drugs. He went back into the room two days after the arrest had happened and sure enough, there was his pen. It wasn't in a place she could possibly have seen it. But while she was in a near-death experience, her soul saw it. Okay, so these souls become disembodied. They're aware of things going on around the body, around the person. What happens next? For many people, the soul then goes through a tunnel and comes out the other side. People describe different things on the other side of this tunnel. Sometimes they describe a very bright light. And usually if they see the light, they'll also describe a feeling that there's a God. Even atheists who are raised in totally secular homes will describe, I knew that feeling was God. They feel intense light and feel intense love, the likes of which they've never experienced in any human relationship. And they all identify it, no matter what the culture, no matter what the religion is from, as coming from God. Some people also describe being met by either a religious figure or a relative who predeceased them. I had a patient who was in a very serious car accident. She was thrown out of her car. She fell asleep at the wheel. And she was thrown quite a distance from her car. And when she died, she was lying there in a beautiful dress. She was on her way to a wedding. And it was covered in blood. And her soul is looking down at her in this beautiful dress covered with blood and thinking, why, why do you look like that? Her soul went to this tunnel, went to the next world, where she was greeted by her grandfather. Her grandfather was the only person who had ever loved her. And she was so happy to see him. And she said, Grandpa, I'm so happy to see you. He said, I'm so happy to see you too. She said, I'm so glad to be here. Now I don't have to struggle and work so hard every day of my life because it's over. He said, not so fast, Tatala. You've got more work to do. You're going back into that world. Many people who come back from these near-death experiences have a conversation with such a person, and either the person tells them it's not their time yet, or they're simply sent back into this physical world, which they experience that reconnection with their body at the time when they're resuscitated or come back to life. Inv almost invariably, not invariably, but almost invariably, people who have gone to the other side describe it as a world that is incredibly beautiful, a feeling of love, the likes of which they've never known before, that they now know there's a God, they know that there is an afterlife, and they're not afraid to die. I was sitting with someone who was a doctor at a Shabbos table, and he kept insisting he'd worked with many, many heart patients. Never, ever had he ever heard of a near-death experience. And like clockwork, the woman at the opposite side of the table said, I had one. So she told a story of when she was about six years old. She grew up near Malibu, California. And she and her brother had gone swimming. And she got caught underwater, and she couldn't come out. And her brother wasn't strong enough to rescue her. She died. And while she was in the state of, of death, she felt this beauty of God and the love that God felt for her. And she didn't want to come back into this world. And she was trying to communicate with her brother, who was desperately trying to drag her out of the water. Leave me here. This is so beautiful. I don't want to come back to the other world. Well, her brother managed to summon some lifeguards who rescued her. And she was so mad at her brother, she didn't speak to him for two years. 
P.S. After this story happened, that doctor who was at a table in Jerusalem went back to his hospital and told this story over to some people he worked with. And the woman that he'd been working with for 15 years said, I had an almost identical story happen to me when I drowned in a swimming pool at the age of eight. So near-death experiences started to be spoken about in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Today, there are hundreds of thousands of people who have had near-death experiences. In an audience this size, at least six of you will have had a near-death experience, if we go by statistics. Okay, what does Judaism have to say about all of this? Do we believe in near-death experiences? Do we believe in these kinds of phenomena? It's fascinating to hear the answer. So first of all, we say that a soul is aware of much more than the body is. So much so that when a Jew dies, we don't leave the body alone. Because when the soul disconnects from the body at the moment of death, it feels disoriented. It wants to do mitzvot. It wants to still stay connected to the physical world. It wants to be able to create goodness with the spiritual world. But its hands, so to speak, are tied. So at this time of disorientation of the soul separating from the body, we have someone usually reciting psalms in that person's presence until the person is buried. I heard a beautiful story the last couple of days that after 9-11, there were girls from Beis Yaakov schools who recited psalms at site zero, ground zero, until the last of the bodies were found. So that any chance that people were still alive during that period, they would be accompanied until their bodies were buried by the beautiful Psalms of King David that these girls were reciting. So we don't leave a body alone until it's buried because we believe that the soul is aware of what's going on around it and it feels pained by the fact that it can no longer do mitzvot. As I mentioned earlier, after the body is buried, the soul goes on another journey. It goes to the next world. Well, what happens when it goes to the next world? It certainly is aware of what happened in this lifetime with much more depth than it could while it was in a body. But what about this business of going through a life review? I forgot to mention that. People often describe going through a life review that, that the experience is timeless, where they feel, not just see, they feel the impact of everything that they did during their entire lifetime. They feel the pain they caused to others. They feel the goodness that they did and how good it really was. Very Jewish concept. What about this tunnel? So Judaism teaches us that when Adam and Eve died, they were buried in the cave of Machpelah in Hebron, where the matriarchs and the patriarchs were later buried. And that this place has a tunnel that connects this world with the next world. And that is the tunnel through which every single soul exits this world. So when people describe going through a tunnel, it's right there in our book of the Zohar, the Jewish mysticism. What about on the other side? Well, we often describe God as being a very bright, infinite light, totally consistent with Judaism. God is the ultimate light. He's the total illuminator of the world. What about this idea of meeting relatives? Every day in the Jewish liturgy for the morning's prayers, we say that we should never be embarrassed forever and ever. What is this ever and ever? Judaism teaches us that when a soul leaves this world and it goes to the next world, it's greeted by the souls of people who are their relatives who predeceased them. And the relatives say to the soul, 
What kind of a life did you lead when you were on earth? We don't want to be embarrassed confessing about how we made a mess of our lives. We want to be feeling proud of who we were and what we can tell our relatives we achieved and accomplished. So just in, a, in general, we see that there is consistency between people's near-death experiences and what Judaism teaches about the soul. Just to go on to one more piece, I think it's absolutely fascinating. I don't recall ever seeing near-death experiences being written about before the late 1960s, mid to late 1960s. I remember growing up in the 1960s, there was a very strong movement in the United States called the God is Dead movement. Any of you remember that? Atheism became a religion. And God is having the last laugh. At the exact same time that all of these people are campaigning about God is dead, this world is all there is, there's no afterlife, there's no purpose to life, God is saying, you want to bet? He's got such a great sense of humor. At that very time, when they're saying God is dead, he's making people have all of these near-death experiences, which has continued to this day. So here we have a beautiful plan that Judaism tells us about that it happens to be very consistent with what people are telling us from many different cultures and many different religions. I just want to touch on one last piece before I stop, and that has to do with the idea of reincarnation. Do Jews believe in reincarnation? The answer is yes. One of the ways we deal with the issue of um, suffering in this world, why do children suffer, for example? Why do there seem to be certain kinds of senseless tragedies? We believe that a person could very easily be in this lifetime. Each and every Jew has a general task to fulfill, which is to keep the Torah. But God doesn't have duplicates. Each of us, in addition, has our own specific set of challenges, our own specific set of positives, and our own task in life to achieve. My task is different from anybody else's, so don't bother envying me. You want to envy somebody? Envy who you could be, because only you can fulfill the role that God puts you here to fulfill. The idea of reincarnation is that sometimes a person goes through this lifetime and doesn't complete their task. So God, in his tremendous mercy, will sometimes send the part of the soul that wasn't actualized back into this world to give it another chance. I've been told that if you're female, you don't come back again. We're the end of the line. In any case, one of the ways we understand that a baby will die, for example, is that the baby might have a soul of someone who didn't have a lot to complete doing in this world. When that soul finishes what it was here to do, the baby doesn't need to be here anymore. And that soul can go to the highest place of reward. So there's a famous story that's told about a count and a countess who wanted to have children and they couldn't. And they saw that there was a neighboring Jewish community and they went to the rabbi of the community and he said to the rabbi, you know, Rabbi, I see that when you Jews pray, God gives you what you ask for. So I would like you to pray that my wife and I will have a baby. And if at the end of the year we don't have one, I'll know that you didn't take me seriously and things won't go well for you. So the community prays. And lo and behold, the count and countess are blessed with a baby. When the baby was two, the count and countess passed away. Because the Jews had prayed for this baby, they felt it was their responsibility to raise him. So he got raised with a very religious Jewish family, and he became a rabbi. 
very special and amazing rabbi. He lived a long life. He did a great deal of good. And when he went to the next world, his soul went to the next to the highest level of pleasure. And when the angels saw this, they said to God, we don't get it. This man was such a righteous man. He did so much good for the Jewish community. Why didn't his soul go all the way to the highest level of pleasure, heavenly reward? To which God replied, the first two years of his life, he was not in an environment that was so conducive to him becoming who he could be. And therefore, he didn't totally fulfill what his soul was capable of. So that soul was given a chance to come back into this world. And it went into a baby boy. And he was raised by a religious Jewish couple. And the mother on his second birthday was about to take him out of bed. And when she went to take him out of bed, his soul had expired. To us, the greatest tragedy in life is the loss of life. To Jews, the greatest tragedy in life is not making full use of whatever time we have here. And so the idea that a child will die, child will undergo suffering, isn't the worst tragedy in life. The worst tragedy in life is seeing life as meaningless and not making use of the opportunities that we have. When a soul leaves this world, if it completed what it was put here to do, it goes to a place of such immense pleasure that the rabbi said a moment in the world to come is more pleasurable than the entire life in this world. And so there you have an overview of Journeys of the Soul. I have time for taking a couple of questions. Yeah. Basically, the question is this. If Doctors who don't want to believe in near-death experiences talk about the idea that since there's such uniformity, it is simply showing that this is a physiological condition that is happening as the body shuts down. I'll, I'll give you an analogy. As a psychologist, we have to discriminate between two kinds of hallucinations. A person can be given a drug like morphine and hallucinate. There are very specific kinds of hallucinations they have. They'll see bugs crawling on the curtain in their hospital room. There, there's certain very specific kinds of hallucinations. There's another kind of hallucination that a person who's epileptic might have as a prodrome. These would be colors, sounds, noises, uh, black and white designs, not formed hallucinations. When a person says, I see the devil and I'm Napoleon Bonaparte, that's a very different kind of hallucination. So the kinds of things that people are seeing are in the third category. When this woman was in that hospital bed, if the brain were shutting down, why could she see where that pen went that was completely behind her bed? We're not talking about everybody seeing the same phenomenon. When someone says, I saw a patient six doors down on my floor, despite the fact there were walls in between each room, that's not something that anybody else could be doing. So the kind of what we'll call formed and descriptive ex um, experiences are quite unique. It's not when this woman's looking down at her body and saying, oh my goodness, I look awful in my wedding dress. You know, how could I be covered in blood? That's not something that everybody's going to see when their body's shutting down. There's some very specific details which the doctors conveniently like not to see because the implications are too scary for them. The implication of many people dealing with religion are so scary that someone, you know, Watson and Crick, who got the Nobel Prize for, they actually didn't discover the double helix uh, design of DNA. They stole it from a Jewish woman who, who discovered it. The one who's still alive, I think it's Crick, cannot deal with the idea that there's a God who created the world. So this brilliant mind who got a Nobel Prize said, you know how the world was created? 
there are extraterrestrial creatures who seeded the universe. I mean, give me a break. So these brilliant minds are very conveniently refusing to understand the details that make all the difference between the brain shutting down and the details of these people's experiences. So that's the most basic answer that I can give you. And there's actually a doctor who went through it himself, and he wrote a book that came out a couple years ago that became a bestseller because he was one of these naysayers 